This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from how Amazon, Fitbit, and Snap won where Apple, Pebble, and Google did not with Ben Einstein. All right. That was a great interview with Ben. Thanks so much to him for coming on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called narrow customers, low expectations. Ben looks for companies solving a specific problem for a specific customer over those that are solving something a little bit for everyone. We discussed the comparison of Google Glass and Snap Spectacles, one with broad focus, the other narrow. Interestingly, from an engineering standpoint, they are nearly identical. Radios, molded plastic, lenses, batteries, buttons, and sensors. But Glass tried to be all things to all people in very general use cases, whereas Spectacles was designed for a single purpose with a very specific function. So Google created really high user expectations, whereas Snap set user expectations very low. And setting these low yet targeted expectations allows one to delight customers instead of disappoint. Ben reviewed the first thing that Snap did really well. They chose a specific type of person, Gen Z, for their customer. The whole experience was streamlined for a very specific group. The product was also very specific in its design and function, so as to appeal to the group. Bold colors, sold on demand in interesting vending machines, leveraging both scarcity and FOMO. We also compared the launch of Siri with Echo. These products were similar in nature, but scope was very different. Apple went broad, targeting all customers with high expectations. They integrated Siri into all new phones with many features. Whereas Echo went with a physical product that sits in one place and has simple to understand functions. Launching as a platform in Siri's case versus launching as a product in Echo's case. Echo set low user expectations and increased them over time. And Ben reminded us that Amazon is often under the radar. Under-marketing and over-delivering. Their algorithm is designed to delight people by creating much better experiences than the expectation. And Ben acknowledges that startups cannot compete directly with companies like Apple and Amazon. In his example, he said that there were 1,500 people working on the Echo before launch. But what startups can do is change the game, create unfair advantages by focusing on a specific problem. Startups do have an advantage. They are small, flexible, and can approach problems in unique ways. We also discussed the second thing that Snap did really well with the spectacles, which we will cover in key takeaway number two, crossing the chasm with benefits, not features. 
Ben has noticed a recurring issue with failed hardware startups. They are too focused on features over benefits. Here we reviewed the example of Fitbit versus Pebble. Fitbit chose something that the mass market cares about, health and fitness, and they built a brand around the fitness use case. The product, website, and even retail locations reflect a lifestyle brand. Where Pebble focused their marketing on what it is, Fitbit focused on what it does. Ben said, companies that sell low-cost consumer electronics must be solving a problem that early and late majority populations identify with. The technical, rich feature sets, in Pebble's case, appealed to the innovators and the techies, but they could never cross the chasm and reach the market majority. These customers don't buy for the tech, they buy for the benefit. This is evident in each company's website. Pebbles, featuring their e-paper watch with the statement, Be Fit and Smart. Fitbits, featuring a woman running in the rain with the statement, Find Your Fit. Benefit-oriented brand marketing evokes emotions. And this is how the success stories have reached the mass market. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called Just Say No to Crowdfunding. Ben is the first investor I've spoken with that is down on product-based or donation-based crowdfunding. He said it's a focus issue. The founders are focused on designing a video that converts rather than creating a product that delights. Ben said that, quote, it's so much more powerful to have someone give feedback on how their experience actually was using a thing versus someone buying into the idea of a thing, which almost inevitably will let them down, end quote. He wants to hear founders talk about the 10 people that are using and loving the product. He wants to see videos of excited users talking about their experience. From his standpoint, 10 real delighted users are much more powerful than 10,000 non-users that hit the back this campaign button. And Ben did suggest that the most important part of this is an intense focus on how you can learn as fast as possible, as early as possible before you ship. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called a thesis begins with a moat. Defensibility, switching costs, barriers to entry. We hear these terms often when discussing startups. It's not only important to build something of value, but value that can be protected. Many in venture capital refer to this as the moat. Renowned investor Terrence Yang was asked recently, as an investor, if you could ask founders only one question before making a funding decision, what would it be? And Terrence's answer, how are you building a unbreachable moat protecting a very valuable castle. There are different types of factors that can create a moat, some internal, others external. An external example would be regulation. In a previous life, I have dealt with regulatory agencies, including the FAA, while working in aerospace and defense, and the EPA, while working in the water industry. In both cases, the regulations were so onerous that getting a product to market was a multi-year regulatory process. We even employed lobbyists to work on our behalf. While this put strain on our new product development efforts, it also created enormous barriers to entry, protecting the value of products in market. There are also internal factors that create moats. These are factors that reside at the company or product level. Union Square Ventures has a thesis to invest in companies with network effects. Big surprise, central to their thesis is a moat. Network effects drive more user value, raise entry barriers, and increase switching costs. The problem with external factors is they often do more to limit innovation rather than promote it. External factors favor the incumbent, whereas internal factors favor the innovator. 
We can argue the merits of internal versus external moats, but it's certainly easier to exert control over those factors that are in-house. If the moat exists at the product level, you own the moat. If you've hired a band of brigands to build and manage your castle's moat, you may own the customer, but the master of the moat owns you. Now, as an investor, instead of looking for startups with a variety of different moats, what if your thesis had a built-in moat? What if the very category of startups you invest in creates enormous barriers to entry, brand equity, and high switching costs? This is why I invest in smart hardware. Today, Ben mentioned a quote from Brad Feld. I don't invest in hardware. I invest in software wrapped in plastic. There's a big difference between a dumb gadget that collects dust and a smart device that gets more useful over time. Shelfware is to SaaS as the gadget is to smart hardware. There are a number of different reasons why I invest in smart hardware. I've developed a smart hardware product. I love the business model. I love the annuities. I love that there's constant pressure to create more customer value. I love that a sale is the beginning of a customer relationship and not the end. But the thing I love most is that the smart hardware moat is incredibly wide and enormously deep. Not only is it exponentially more difficult to do smart hardware than software alone, thus raising entry barriers, but the connection and brand equity that consumers feel for physical products far exceeds that of virtual products. The reason for this is that smart hardware benefits from many principles of behavioral economics. These principles serve to deepen the relationship with the customer. A sampling of principles that are far more powerful for physical products than virtual includes the sunk cost fallacy, the default effect, escalation of commitment, the status quo bias, perceptual contrast, social proof, and the consistency principle. All these factors make the customer more likely to buy, to use, to promote, and to convince themselves that they've made a great purchase. Does a moat have to be hardware? Absolutely not. But should a moat be fundamental to startup strategy from day one? You know my position. And if founders must face this when designing their business, why shouldn't investors when creating their thesis? In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from the importance of storytelling, VCEQ, and the LPGP dating game with Trey Hart. Okay, lots of fun in that discussion with Trey. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is the general partner, limited partner dance. We kicked off the conversation by discussing the importance of storytelling. This transcends the LPGP relationship and even the venture business. One's ability to synthesize their experience and craft a compelling narrative is essential in relationships and in sales. Ultimately, a VC pitching an LP is a sales process. Both capital and expertise is for sale. Trey emphasized the importance of timing during this engagement. He said that one needs to know when a sale is going to happen. The people that stand out are those that understand the cadence of fundraising best. They need to know when to push and when not to push. And the reality is that a lot of LPs don't know what they're looking for, which can put a lot of stress on the GP. Trey suggested that the most important component is framing the conversation. He aims to have an open and transparent meeting where the LP is clear about what he's looking for so as not to string along the GP and waste everybody's time. 
As he said, there are way too many people to meet in this business. It would serve everyone to clarify intentions up front and engage under the right pretense. Okay, key takeaway number two is called GPs that stand out. Trey thinks of GPs in two groups. Number one, those that are easy to give money to, but are hard to get into. And number two, those that are hard to give money to, but are easy to get into. In the LP community, this is what separates the bad from the good and the good from the great. Trey cited Lyndall Ekman as someone who has routinely given money to the latter and enjoyed tremendous success doing so. The best in the LP business are those that make money by giving to managers that are yet unproven. I'd venture to guess that it's a similar parallel with GPs giving money to entrepreneurs. Proven founders often raise at very high valuations early on, limiting return upside. While first-time founders may be much harder to assess, the upside opportunity is higher for those GPs that take the risk. Hence, the return profile for the earliest stages in venture capital are often the highest. Trey said that the truly great GPs have mastery of stage, sector, or geography, and in some cases, all three. A few unique characteristics that he's looking for include an actual track record, unique relationships within the geographic center of investment, and also how integral a part of the ecosystem the GP is to all the most important things that spin off, including companies, entrepreneurs, and technologies. And to finish this point, Trey said that Northern is trying to invest as much around those clusters and centers of influence as possible. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called GP Red Flags. In any engagement, Trey is looking for cues that a GP may have an integrity issue or an emotional intelligence issue. The following are red flags that he's observed over the years. First, do they push too hard, too early, trying to close the sale before a relationship has developed? Next, do they misrepresent their track record? One of the most difficult parts of being an LP is figuring out who truly led investments and deserves credit. Misrepresentation and inflating one's accomplishments rarely has a positive outcome. Next, we have GPs that do all the talking. They don't bother to find points of commonality. Whether it's family, hobbies, background, investment philosophy, etc., the points of commonality are a great way to establish rapport and build a relationship. Remember, this is going to be a long-term relationship, one where it's not easy for the LP to get their money back if they have second thoughts. And finally, Trey mentioned that with the good ones, you've got to make sure they're not having strategy drift and that they have a team succession plan. And I'll leave you with a quote from Trey on a clear disqualifier. He said, when you're trying to make judgments where you're thinking, I don't want to give people money if I think there's an integrity issue, you've got to trust your gut because it's almost always right. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called What Winning Looks Like in VC. In today's interview, we quickly discussed the key metrics by which venture fund managers are measured. I'd like to use this week's tip to review what each of these metrics are, who values each of them, and why some can be manipulated while others can't. The metrics we will review include DPI, TVPI, IRR, follow-on, and bulge bracket follow-on. And in the case of the first three, I will use definitions from Silicon Valley Bank. First, we have DPI. This is the ratio of cumulative distributions to limited partners divided by the amount of capital contributed by the limited partners. The nice thing about this metric is that it compares actual dollars distributed to LPs against the dollars they invested. It's a true cash-on-cash -cash multiple. 
The drawback is that it's typically not usable until later in a fund's life. It's rare for a new fund to have exits and cash distributions very early, so the metric doesn't paint a clear picture early on. From my discussions with a range of folks in the industry, it appears that a 3-5x to x DPI puts you on the big board. Next, we've got TVPI. This is the sum of cumulative distributions to limited partners and the net asset value of their investment divided by the capital contributed by the limited partners. So this metric accounts for both cash distributions to LPs and the net asset value of existing investments that they have not yet exited. In theory, it sounds great, but the problem here is that paper valuations in venture are pretty unreliable. Some may go to zero, others to the moon, and yet others may languish in the private markets for many years, delaying an exit and cash distribution. It's also worth mentioning that neither of these first two metrics account for the time it takes to return capital, which leads us to our next metric, IRR. Internal rate of return is the annualized effective return rate, which can be earned on invested capital, i.e. the yield on investment. This determines the time-adjusted yearly rate of return. Many great firms are in the 20s. Many not-so-great are in the low single digits. On paper, this would seem like the best metric for assessing winners. However, it's an easy metric to manipulate. Cheapies can do a number of things to inflate their IRR. Namely, they can borrow money from a bank at low interest, invest that capital in a startup, and then call the capital from the fund much later. This effectively reduces the time between when the capital was invested and when the distributions are made. If you reduce the time component, then the IRR goes up. I've even heard of cases with early exits where the capital isn't officially invested until after distributions are made. This causes some firms to show doctored IRRs that are very, very high, particularly early in a fund's life. Okay, the next metric we have is follow-on. This is simply a percentage that represents the number of companies that have received follow-on funding versus the total number of companies invested in. This metric can be used to assess Series A follow-on ratio, Series B, etc., depending on how mature investments are. And the final metric we'll discuss is bulge bracket follow-on. This is a key metric that I hear about more often lately. Great institutional investors don't care about follow-on alone. They want to see the percentage of follow-on by the best-performing A and B investors. If you're a GP, how many of your investments receive funding from Sequoia, Excel, Bessemer, KPCB, etc.? When assessing funds very early in their life cycle, this can be a helpful signal that shows both quality of investment, relationships with top firms, and outcome potential. In discussions with a wide range of LPs, including high net worths, ultra high net worths, family offices, fund of funds, sovereign wealth, foundations, pensions, and endowments, my big takeaway is that there is no silver bullet. Each type of LP and each individual LP looks at different metrics. Trey likely has his own priority and even cited the merits of DPI as it can't be easily manipulated. Many high net worth retail investors also tend to prefer cash-on-cash multiples over IRRs or follow-on. Regardless, each GP must measure them all and be measured by each. Those that optimize for one at the expense of the others may not be raising a fund too. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world. 
and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from Dispelling Conventional Wisdom with Eric Paley. Wow. I think that was one of my favorite interviews of all time. Thanks again to Eric Paley for joining us on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called Capital as a Magnifier. Before we got into the study, Eric first reviewed the fundamental principles of raising capital. He said that VC is a magnifier of whatever you have. It can magnify the good things or the bad. There is pressure for VCs to deploy capital and increase their assets under management. They want to raise fast and deploy fast, which is great for strong businesses that are undercapitalized. But for those that haven't determined how to grow in an accretive way, capital only magnifies their problems. While growth is the best way to assess if the market cares about your product, companies often throw money at things that aren't working. Founders and investors are equally culpable. The founders are chasing growth and the investors are pushing for it. Yet scaling things that don't work only damages the long-term potential of the business, and it becomes very hard to unwind. Remember that money has no intelligence. It's just a multiplier of the good or the bad. And the results of Eric's IPO study showed no causation or even correlation between the amount of capital raised and the exit outcomes. Just because one can raise $20 million on an $80 million pre doesn't mean they wouldn't be better off taking $10 million on a $40 million pre. Even though the founders suffer the same dilution for each, capital is not the driver of successful outcomes. It is merely an enabler. Okay, key takeaway number two is called the pro rata founder impact. We spent a lot of time discussing the impacts of pro rata. Let's first address the situation for founders. When early investors have additional dry powder, it sounds great to entrepreneurs. It's presented that this helps reduce the funding burden in future rounds. However, what often happens is that when things are going really well, there's no scarcity of capital. 
And in fact, allowing investors to take their pro rata presents a difficult challenge for many founders. I just went through this situation with a founder doing a Series A. There was so much demand for the round that he was feeling the pressure from all sides to limit their follow-ons. So unfortunately, when things are going well, this is not a positive. Now let's look at the other side, when things are not going well. When a startup is struggling and the founder really needs follow-on money, the VC typically has much less interest in participating. It's their right to participate, but it's not an obligation. So when things are going great, the founder doesn't need the follow-on, and when things are going poorly, they need it and can't get it. Let's look at one scenario where capital reserves can be an asset. If the early investor preempts the Series A, sets the price, and invests the capital, this can provide a lot of value. It's a significant time saver for the founder. Rather than take 100 calls and find a lead, they've got an early lead and a large commitment. However, very few firms do this. Early investors are not incentivized to price a new round. Remember that a pro rata entitles the investor to maintain their equity percentage and even increase that percentage with super pro rata. So no matter where the price ends up, they know what percentage they're entitled to, thus eliminating the incentive for them to lead. Okay, key takeaway number three is called the follow-on impact for investors. All right, now that we've reviewed pro rata and follow-ons for founders, let's transition over to the investor side. So conventional wisdom is that following on with your winners is the best way to drive returns. As Eric articulated, if you look at incentives in the industry, it's obvious why this is conventional wisdom. Fund managers are rewarded by having large amounts of assets under management, which drives them to deploy more capital. And the easiest way to deploy more capital is to double, triple, or quadruple down on your existing portcos. If you're reserving $4 for every initial $1 you invest, your weighted average cost basis is a Series B investment. If you look at the average price you paid for equity in startups, the price is much closer to a later stage valuation. And many of these firms consider themselves to be seed firms, expecting seed stage multiples. This also increases risk significantly as the fund ends up with a much more concentrated portfolio. The majority of dollars invested will be in a small number of perceived winners. And if these don't work out, it's catastrophic to the portfolio. The range of outcomes has much fatter tails with some funds doing really well while others lose the majority of their committed capital. Contrast that with a diversified portfolio, where the manager stays at the seed stage and invests more money in each company at this stage and also makes many more investments. Those that argue the merits of following on often present the fully optimized portfolio, where they follow down to the winners and they pass on the losers. But the data suggests that VCs are actually very poor at distinguishing between their winners and losers when making follow-on investment decisions. Another negative is that these seed-turned-series-B investors are only investing in their existing portfolio at these later rounds. Without realizing it, they become Series B investors that only have access to a very small number of companies being funded at B. If access is everything in venture why would an investor limit themselves to such a small slice of the market? According to Eric, this would mean that every firm believes that their Series B graduates will outperform all the other Series B companies getting funded. 
A final counterintuitive aspect is that pro rata investors want to invest more money when the price is higher. So while typically investors want the best price, those already in the deal put more money in when the price is high. Eric told us the situation with his company, Brontes, where a previous investor wouldn't lead the deal at $30 million because they thought the price was too high. But when someone else decided to lead at $50 million, they wanted to make an even larger investment. The final point that Eric made on the problem with ProRata is that from a return standpoint, the first check-in is always the check with the highest returns. For those really looking to improve their returns and not just assets under management, maybe the focus should be investing more early instead of late. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called What Killed Sprig? If you've been following tech media this week, the big news was that Sprig is shutting down. We've spoken a number of times about Sprig with Samil Shah and others on the program and lauded the company for its incredible rise from fledgling food delivery startup to the next on-demand unicorn. Different from many other food delivery startups, Sprig was full stack. They created the recipes. Their chefs prepared the meals. They had a fleet of delivery folks often pedaling around the streets of Chicago. Their well-crafted meals were a hit amongst the busy urban professionals looking for a healthier alternative to takeout. In a way, they had created their own restaurant with no dine-in option and the guarantee of delivery in less than 20 minutes. Personally, I value delicious hot meals. I often like to eat dinner at home. And above all, I don't want to spend an hour cooking something mediocre or waiting for cold, unhealthy delivery. For those reasons, I was an immediate Sprig convert. During the first couple weeks of use, I was impressed. The food was pretty good. Not always hot, but quick and satisfying. I recommended Sprig to friends. They recommended to their friends. And a lot of people in the extended network were beginning to use Sprig. Then slowly, I began ordering less frequently. Eventually, I stopped altogether. As I spoke with friends, it seemed like they went through a similar cycle. Everyone was excited at first and then slowly stopped using the service. As I reflect on my churn story, a few things come to mind. Number one, delivery was inconsistent. Most nights, the food arrived in less than 20 minutes, but there were a couple scenarios where they had issues and it took over an hour. As you can imagine, this was both confusing and frustrating as the app showed a delivery person doing circles around my building while I convinced myself I was going to starve. The second thing that comes to mind in my churn story is that delivery was awkward. Sprig made a decision that I thought was really smart. They disallowed the customer from paying a tip. I thought this was brilliant, as I always find it awkward to figure out how much to pay a delivery person. 20% of the meal price, 20% of the meal price plus a few bucks, Is the delivery charge already included in the cost? I'm often confused, and they made a smart step in the right direction. The problem? I still felt guilty and awkward not paying a tip. Despite Sprigg's insistence on not paying a tip, delivery remains an awkward exchange. The third thing that comes to mind in my churn story is that interruptions changed my behavior. While I was still using Sprigg, they had an unplanned break in service. I'm not sure how long the pause was because I never came back. I believe it may have been a couple weeks, 
but in that time, my habits quickly changed. I found other solutions for dinner and never found a compelling reason to re-engage with Sprig. And this last point relates to the single biggest reason why I left Sprig and never returned. Ultimately, the food just wasn't great. It started off strong, pretty warm, seemingly fresh, well-crafted. But over time, it started showing up cold. Often the meal was pushed to one side of the paper bowl it was served in, presenting a displeasing, sloppy appearance. And worse yet, I started receiving meals that just weren't that good. In a way, it was anticlimactic. They came out of the gate strong with delicious meals. Then, between recipes, ingredients, appearance, and temperature, they just didn't taste very good. If the meals were fantastic early and remained fantastic, I would have dealt with the delivery issues and interruptions. But it wasn't, and I churned. Per the interview today, it's pretty clear that the unit economics for Sprig were upside down. They could not create and deliver meals to customers for less than their cost. To Eric's earlier points, they were magnifying problems, throwing money at scaling a system that didn't work. And I imagine that these problems were exacerbated by CACs that outpace CLVs. When customer acquisition cost is high and lifetime value is not, scale is not a solution. I'd imagine that CEO Gagan Biani and Spriggs Investors plan for much higher customer lifetime value. But bad product is the ultimate equalizer. The minute the customer experience becomes unpleasant, give them a reason and they're gone. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.